you could call it a perfect psalm. As literature, it's as perfect as Mozart. Coherent, expansive, and beautiful. With these lines that are textbook examples of how parallelism in the psalms works. They have stock word pairs paralleled in perfect lines. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your habitation, then the switch, no evil will befall you, no affliction come near your dwelling. Orderly, almost predictable. If you ran a mouse through this psalm, just like Collins invites us to do with poetry, this mouse would have to run down a grid of perpendicular angles and flat surfaces, run through a geography that's as well-planned as an ancient Roman city center. And not just literature, it's theology, it's perfect too. With a view of God that's totally in control of our reality. Earlier in the text, the author names the whole of our precarious existence, terrors at night and arrows by day, sickness at midnight and destruction by noon. And in all of this, throughout the whole of the day, for enemies that are visible and invisible, God is trustworthy, completely and always able to protect us from danger. So in all of these aspects, it's a perfect text. As per- so perfect, in fact, that this text is often found on amulets. Whole verses of this text are sometimes just the first letter of each of the verses, printed out on paper or clay, strung around the neck or carried in the hands of believers from the ancient world through medieval Christianity, and I checked this morning, also available to you through eBay or Etsy. (laughs) It's perfect enough to serve as an amulet. Okay, so that is a little bit weird. But the weirdest thing about this psalm is in some ways the way that it stands out against all the other psalms. Most, as you know, aren't quite nearly so tidy. All aren't quite ready for their own amulet. In other psalms, statements are made that are later contradicted. The narrative arc, when you can find one at all, spirals back and forth against itself. Most other psalms are prayed to God and all and end incompletely with the supplicant still left waiting for the divine voice. And in most other psalms, praise and lament all get mixed in together. Maybe strangest of all is that this psalm actually has no praise or lament. Like a perfectly orderly psalm, it's a statement of trust all the way down. So what is this strange psalm doing? At the obvious level, it's simply asserting the trustworthiness of God in both the content and the form. Not in praise or lament, simply in affirmation. God is trustworthy. The one who, as the author of Romans writes, knew everything before in advance and who works everything together for good. But I might suggest that this reading of the psalm only works if you're reading at the most obvious level, or maybe on autopilot. When the truly awake and alive person 
Here's a text like verse 10. No evil will befall you. No affliction come near your dwelling. You should have a visceral response with something like, are you kidding me? The text is perfect on the outside, but there's a sense in which you really engage it. It raises up all kinds of complications. God is trustworthy, but I don't always trust. God will protect me, but I feel so vulnerable. It's a perfect text, and I'm an imperfect wreck. So maybe part of the power of this text is simply in the perfect, uh, um, perfect assertions that it makes, the one that it asks me to make. No evil will befall me. God has given the angels charge over me. And even if this doesn't feel like my current imperfect situation, maybe I need to say this to myself, to As you remember, one of the strange powers of the Psalms is that they put words into your mouth. You don't simply read them, you pray them. They're written to become your words. Trust and obey, we sang the other week, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Okay, I'll trust and obey and believe that my perfect God is perfectly trustworthy, and that this is my truest reality. And all my own current worries are simply chaff, flimsy byproducts of narrow thinking and maybe navel-gazing that this psalm asks me to hand over to God. Or it may be that the power of the text comes not simply in the assertions that I make, but also in the proclamations that I hear from others. You have all said these words. You have all, through the agency of this psalm, testified to the rest of us. You have reminded me, you have reminded us of the real source of strength. You have made the bold claim that no evil will befall me. And I've said the same to you. And all before 9.30 in the morning, But at the end, as powerful as this might be, it's still not enough. At the end, after we have testified to God's power and reminded each other about the true source of our strength, God shows up. Verse 14, right through the end, God shows up and makes no less than a perfect seven promises of protection. I'll deliver you, I'll uphold you, I'll answer. I'll be with you in trouble, I'll save you, I'll fill you with old age. And finally, I'll show you my salvation. Seven promises, right from the mouth of God. That doesn't happen in the Psalms very often either. We could sit here all day, talking to ourselves and to each other, reminding exhorting, asserting, and there is a true power in this. 
But it doesn't mean a thing unless God is part of it all. Not to spare us from trouble, but to be with us in trouble. Like something in our hand or worn around our neck. A perfect text that we can take into our imperfect lives that reminds us of who we are and reminds us of of the most perfect truth of all, that God is with us. Amen.